Fire evacuation in progress. You've seen the fire trucks here. Yep. You think they'll be able to save your house? Nope, because they left. This is a climate damn emergency. This is real. This is how we live in California now. I mean, it's the, it's the charcoal state, not the sunshine state anymore, right? Hey there, people. Welcome to the Extra Spicy Podcast. I am Justin Phillips. And I'm Soleil Ho. Right now, wildfires are scorching California's wine country. Again, destroying homes, wineries, and restaurants throughout Napa and Sonoma counties. At the time of this recording, about a dozen wineries have been damaged in what's being called the glass fire. Ash is falling from the sky, smoke is choking the air, vineyards are burning. It's honestly just the latest chapter in what's been a really apocalyptic year. Yeah, tens of thousands of acres have burned and many, many people have been forced to evacuate. I'm not giving a number right now because it keeps changing and increasing and yeah, yeah. you can stay updated on our site. Right. And the person that, you know, has their finger on the pulse of what's happening in wine country and just honestly, all of this stuff is our wine critic, Esther Mobley. It just seems like these are these major moments of reckoning for what's a statewide $40 million industry. With Esther, we'll be talking about the wineries impacted by the fires, the psychological flavor-wise toll of the pandemic combined with the fire season, and what the future of wine in the Bay Area might look like as climate change makes fires more frequent and more intense. So we're recording this episode on Wednesday, September 30th, 2020, and it's already been one hell of a week. So Esther, thank you for joining us at this last minute. I know you've been so busy. We've all been so busy. <laughs> Can you give us a sense of what, where are we right now? Um, where are the fires? Where do they start? Um, what's being affected? Well, I, I think there's, what are there, like 27 fires simultaneously in California right now, but the one we're talking about, um, the glass fire started early in the wee hours of Sunday morning. It's Wednesday now and it's burned um, almost 50,000 acres. It's into Sonoma County. It, it kind of moved east to west through Napa and then jumped into Sonoma County um, as you mentioned, a, a number of wineries have been damaged or destroyed, more than a dozen, um, more certainly more than um, what happened to Napa in 2017 during those, those famous wine country fires. I remember, uh, just to follow that up real quick, I remember, Esther, the... Maybe you, you might have been like about to head on to vacation or something in 2017. And uh, when all of these fires kind of like kicked off and wine country was really being being impacted. And I remember you came in that morning and absolutely crushed like a perspective piece on what was happening because everyone was like, oh, my God, get Esther to do this real quick. <laughs> and uh, and I thought that was amazing. But I always think about that because you kind of like it, it was an emotional day. You know, when you look at all of the fires that you have to cover right now, like how are you a veteran at this stuff now? Is it still the same kind of toll? Like you've written perspective pieces multiple times. Like where are you as a, you know, as a critic at this point? It seems like you cover so many things in this. Well, I, I, we have colleagues who, who have done much more extensive wildfire reporting, um, 
on the kind of general assignment non-wine beat than I have. Um, but yeah, the, the story of wildfires over the last few years has um, in many ways been a wine industry story. And um, the 2017 fires were just these explosive fires in both Napa and Sonoma counties. 2019, we saw the Kincaid fire in uh, in Alexander Valley in Sonoma County. And then in August last month, we had major fires in multiple wine regions all at once in Napa, in Sonoma, in the Santa Cruz Mountains, in Monterey. And, um, you know, to some extent, whenever these wildfires happen, there's, there's a, there's a kind of set of questions that always come up for wine, right? The question of smoke, the question of our farm workers and other workers being asked to continue to do work outdoors in smoky conditions, the questions of will the grapes all be ruined, the questions of will the wine be ruined if people can't get through evacuation zones and get back into the winery, the question of will tourism now be decimated because there's this perception around the world that these places are in ruins and no one's ever going to want to come back to uh, have a vacation in Napa Valley. Um, so we go through these questions every time we, we try to understand the stories of the individual people who have lost livelihoods and homes and work. And in many cases, these things that are like family history, these I mean, I, I think wine, often these multi-generational family businesses, and um, there's a we, there's so many historic buildings that have been lost this week, but it's like every year this happens again, or every month <laughs> this happens again. It's like the, 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 the kind of severity, the extreme nature of the questions just gets compounded. It's like, okay, if this happens once every several years, it's like, Napa strong, <laughs> Sonoma strong. And then if this is happening multiple times in a year on this catastrophic level, you're just like, what? I, I mean, yeah, it, we're still in the midst of it. It's, you know, hard to kind of take the bird's eye view right now, but it just seems like these are these major moments of reckoning for what's a statewide $40 million industry. Mm. Okay, so California winemakers have spent so much time trying to turn California wine regions into, you know, globally recognized places that deserve attention, right, for their wine and for their vintages. Um, and it doesn't seem like other wine regions around the world have to deal with wildfires as much at, or at all. Um, I mean, maybe that's my misperception. But I guess my question is, how does this affect, you know, you alluded to this, the the sort of global perception of California wine? There are other wine regions in the world, like Spain and Portugal, for instance, have wine regions that are that are really um, vulnerable to wildfire. But yeah, I think just like California in general, I think is becoming uniquely associated with wildfire. Um, it's a big problem, you know, um, wineries, like they don't open and close as easily as, for instance, a restaurant does. Um takes more to open it, more to close it. But um, there were a few businesses that went out of business citing the downturn in tourism due to perceptions around the fires. So Shed and Healdsburg, that really ambitious restaurant farmstead concept, um, the Jimtown store in Alexander Valley, this, this kind of old time cafe, general store type place closed um, after the Kincaid fire. And I remember after the 2017 fires getting 
emails, messages from like people I know from far away being like, oh, I'd been thinking about coming to Napa in Sonoma next spring, but is there anything left? And you're just like, (laughs) yeah. I mean, that, that became its own, that became its own problem. And, um, that became its own problem that, that people really had this kind of misplaced idea about what it was like. And we can talk about the feasibility of rebuilding some of these communities and, and how we do that and whether we need to have a kind of longer term reconsideration of the, what do we call it now? The wildland urban interface. But, um, in the short term, these places bounce back. They're resilient. They rebuild, um, you know, coffee park in Santa Rosa is rebuilt. And, um, so it's really, and within a few months, really places are, are kind of back in business and seeming somewhat normal. Although, um, you do still see like a blackened hillside Mm. here and there long after the fires have passed. I remember, uh, I remember going to coffee park after that, uh, after the fire blew through there and there was just that, housing development that was completely gone like uh that and then i remember because we were writing about these uh food businesses across the street that were still open and they were like feeding construction workers and uh and families that were just coming in to see what their properties were but um that makes me think of like the lasting effect that these fires have and I guess this is both like a consumer and a wine novice question, but can you talk about the uh, the effect that these fires have on, I guess, you know, might be general, but the fl- the taste of wine that comes out of wine country? So this is like the big issue. Um, I feel like before these fires broke out, this was all I had been writing about for a month, just based on the fires that happened in August. Um Smoke taint is a concern. So what happens is wildfire smoke, when it lingers in the air for a while, can impart certain compounds into grapes that are still hanging on the vine. And those are impossible to get rid of and then will make your wine that you make out of those grapes taste smoky and often not in a good way. Like, you know, some wines taste kind of pleasantly smoky, but um, this is like ashtray, charcoal. You don't want to go there thing. The problem is it's like very poorly understood science. So we know there's like a a handful of compounds that are responsible for these smoke taint things, and those can be tested for. There's probably a lot of other compounds that the scientific community still hasn't even identified. Part of the issue is they can exist in free or bound states in the grapes and then also in the wine. So there may be a lot of them that like just have yet to release and become volatilized and reveal themselves. And so one thing is like when a wine is fermenting, some of these can be released, these compounds. So you might not be able to taste or perceive it in the grapes, but then during the fermentation, when it's becoming wine, suddenly they appear. They even think that there are enzymes in the human mouth that activate these compounds. So literally, (laughs) it's kind of crazy. Literally, you wouldn't be able to know it's there until you're tasting it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's a big problem. Um, And uh, the, the kind of main lab that that does this sort of testing in Northern California is has been totally backlogged because there's been just this unprecedented need for smoke taint testing this year because the 
fires that came in August were not only so early so that almost nothing had been picked yet. You know, the other fires, they've they have tended to come later in the season when most of the grapes have been picked. And also they were just so geographically widespread. It wasn't confined to one little area. Like for instance, the Kincaid fire. Okay. Here's this one little region. This was all over the place. This was all over Northern and central California. So, um, it's like, nobody knows people are having to wait more than a month to get test results back. And then as we said, you know, those test results still may not even tell you the full picture. So this has become like this totally hot button issue. Um, researchers and, and labs in California are working a lot with people in Australia who obviously have some experience dealing with this sort of stuff. And they, are, you know, have research institutes that are have been invested a lot into learning about this. But um it's, so it's it really is a big issue. And then on top of it, there's this question, kind of like um, a corollary to what we were talking about before related to tourism, but this perception problem. And the wineries are so concerned that if people just know, oh, there were smoke concerns in 2020, that everyone's going to think, oh, all 2020 California wine is shit. When in reality, what's going to happen is wineries just won't make or won't release wine that is smoke mm. compromised. Like it's not like they're going to put a bunch of smoky wine out into there. They would just not make it. Um, so <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's what they're dealing with. I mean, a number of wineries have said they're not making any wine or they're making only very little wine this year because of those smoke concerns. And of course, there's little pockets, geographic pockets that have not been as severely affected by smoke. We know just from living in the Bay Area, right? Like it can vary so much by the neighborhood you're in, whether the air is smoky. Um, and then people who who picked their grapes really, really early um, in August are definitely feeling happy that they did that. Um, because if you, if you got those grapes off the vine before those fires started around mid-August, you were, you were in luck. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. I'm Solejo, and we're back with Esther Mobley, the wine critic for the San Francisco Chronicle. You've written before about sort of like grape surplus, too, because people are buying less wine right now as well. Um, what happens to all those grapes if they're smoke tainted or they're just not sellable? Like what, what do they do? Excellent question. So um, sometimes they literally just like drop them to the ground um, and it... A lot depends. This is like something I don't even know the full extent about, but insurance has a lot to do with it. So sometimes if a, if a grower, if a winery who's contracted to buy grapes from a farmer says we're not buying the grapes, then the grower can only collect on the insurance if those grapes aren't sold to someone. Um, a lot of what happens too is given that a lot of people are making the wine and like hoping for the best, but not knowing whether smoke's going to be a concern. Um, and sometimes the winery's insurance will require them to quote unquote destroy the wine, which basically means like ship it off to get distilled into neutral alcohol. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot of like, um, there's a lot of neutral grape brandy that gets um, put out there. And that, I mean, that can be used. It honestly, like, you know, it, some of it is just becomes industrial mm. ethanol. Um, basically like there, I wish I could tell you about all these like creative uses I'm hearing 
about for unpicked or unusable wine grapes. I wrote about one recently that was a very small scale thing where St. George Spirits, a great distillery in Alameda, um, was making grappa that was Mm. kind of deliberately smoky out of smoke tainted grapes from Mm. 2019. Mm. Okay. So you're saying this might be a good year for like Everclear. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. If you want to make a bunch of slightly smoky tasting jungle and, juice. And look, and and in a normal year, you know, that would be a college kid thing, but we also have the pandemic. So oh, no. it's like, oh my god, you're right. There's, there's no frat no party. Yeah, no jungle juice. No jungle juice. Oh man. Um so uh quick thing, uh while we're on this consumer angle too, just to to uh, explain it simply, Esther, what does this mean for the shelves? Like, what what do wildfire seasons mean for people being able to go get two buck chuck or some shit like that? Like, what does that mean <laughs> for the buyer? Well, the the wineries that have been affected so far in the glass fire are pretty high end wineries. They're in these areas of northern Napa Valley that are pretty fancy and expensive to buy land there, you know, expensive wine comes from there. And a lot of them did have wine inventory on site that has been destroyed, but um, almost everyone keeps some wine inventory offsite in some kind of warehouse type mm-hmm. situation. So for instance, this morning I was, I was just talking to um, the winemaker at Kane Winery, which I love their wines um, up on Spring Mountain. And they had all of their 2019 and 2020 vintages at the winery, which has burned and been completely destroyed, but everything else was off site and they'll be able to sell those normally. Again, like um, the wildfires themselves, at least as they currently stand, we'll see where things go. Won't both because of the, the kind of nature of the, the high end nature of the wineries that it's so far affected. And because even though, you know, more than a dozen wineries destroyed, sounds like a lot. It's really a very, very tiny percentage of the wineries. I mean, there are more than a thousand wineries in Mm -hmm. Napa and Sonoma Mm -hmm. counties. I don't think it's really going to have an effect on the supply chain. Um, and, and then, you know, even those wineries have a lot of, a lot of inventory offsite. So we'll see. I mean, I think, um, you know, the, the big industrial wineries can get pretty creative if they need, you know, they need to keep stocking Tubek Chuck. A lot of them like Tubek Chuck, for instance, is, uh, a kind of amalgamation of wine that's bought on mm-hmm. this secondhand mm-hmm. bulk market. And it's not necessarily dependent on this one specific place. And is that place okay? <laughs> Did it get smoke taint? They can, they can mix and match, you know, grab different things from the spice rack, uh, to, to make the stew every year. And people can even blend in different you know, vintages and to kind of stretch out what they have from a specific year. So we'll see. I mean, again, Soleil, you alluded to this earlier, but part of the problem is a lot of farmers who are getting their grapes rejected by wineries who are citing smoke taint is the reason suspect that smoke taint is like this convenient excuse for the wineries who are actually trying to cut back on their production because they have excess inventory because wine sales have been slowing down. So like a lot of the it, the smoke tank thing, in a way, it like there's a, there may be some ulterior motives for people who are actually trying to kind of like just fix a supply and demand issue that's going oh, on. Wow! Wow! Uh, 
That's so sneaky. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's, you know, it's like, it's hard, it's hard to kind of substantiate, but um, almost every person on the kind of ag side of this that I'm talking to says that they suspect that is going on. So speaking of the ag side, um, what is going on with the people who have been picking the grapes? Um, There's certainly a lot of dramatic images, right, in the past few months of people working in fields and the many agricultural sort of businesses in California while the skies are like red or orange. Um, But, you know, as this becomes a repeat problem in wine country, what is it like to be a farm worker or a vineyard worker? Well, it's interesting. I think, yeah, it's, it's such a terrible situation, a kind of impossible choice for a lot of these agricultural workers, because it's like, do you work in unsafe conditions or do you not work? And driving around Napa Valley yesterday, there was not a picking crew in sight. And this is a time of year when you would normally expect to see the fields full, especially in the earlier side of the morning of workers. So, um, I, I mean, I think actually the smoke concerns now are prob are making a lot of wineries do less picking like a lot of the a lot of the wineries I was talking to yesterday were like we're done for the year there's there's not much more we want to be able to get off the vines um so that's good from a health perspective for the workers who would otherwise be asked to be outside but then again these workers also are are going without paychecks. So there are efforts to to provide financial relief. The Napa County Farm Bureau is has just announced some help for people who have been affected by the glass fire and I think there you know there's a number of of support services throughout Napa and Sonoma counties but it's really not a good situation for those people. Can you speak a little bit more broadly about the outlook for wine country if this is going to happen again or worse? probably worse. Um, what can winemakers and people up there do to mitigate the damage? This is like the million or rather like the hundred trillion dollar question for California, right? I mean, um, of course, we uh, people are talking a lot about defensible space, about creating fire breaks, about, um, about, of course, controlled burns being a really important thing. And we're, there's so much um, thought being put into like, you know, before the the white people settled California, how did the people who lived here before treat the land? And, you know, how can we kind of try to learn, you know, learn something that it, it took um, people hundreds of years to unlearn? Uh, I think the other one interesting thing that's come up a lot, though, is the importance of animals and grazing. Um, And I mean, essentially, you have these beautiful swaths of of open land and Napa County especially has such tight regulations on how land can be developed and keeping things open and not cutting down trees, very strict environmental regulations that exist for really good reasons, but they may also present their own issues with, with fire safety. Um, if you have animals out there that are grazing and keeping the brush low, you know, that may, that may help. And, um, also we know that animals grazing have other benefits for the land related to carbon sequestration. I've heard people ask, like, can we just release all the cattle from the feed houses and let them graze? (laughs) And it does a double, you know, it accomplishes two things. But 
It's really, there's so many complicated things because for instance, like organically farmed vineyards are more likely to burn than non-organically farmed vineyards because they have so much happening. Like they're not, they're, there's not roundup. So there might be weeds running wild. They've got big high grasses of cover crop between the vines. And so it's like all these people who have put so much thought into their, you know, being, doing regenerative farming and keeping things really responsible and, and beautiful are like in a way more vulnerable to fire through their individual vineyards. So I, I, you know, I don't think anyone has really good answers for a lot of these questions and, um, we'll see. And, and the worst part about it too, is it, it, as we know now, just because you had fire come to your neighborhood within the last couple of years, doesn't mean you're immune. So Esther, one of the things about these uh, about these wildfire stories too, about the coverage itself, is just the imagery. Like the, you know, you have these dark photos, the fire, like that orange hue. Like there's just something, you know, it's dramatic based off the damage and the lives lost and the, you know, just all of the the disaster around this. But the imagery is significant too, and it makes me wonder when you have these iconic wineries that burn down, what goes into being able to rebuild those properties? Like, is it a complicated process? Is it a simple process? You know, when they have to look at the wines, like what's, what, what is that process like? Well, it, it, the, the beginning of it is super messy. I mean, I was at Castella di Amorosa in Calistoga yesterday where the main castle was fine, but, um, this big farm, they call it a farmhouse, but it's a big stone building that had a lot of their wine stored in it, a lot of offices, a lot of winemaking areas and equipment. And it's just like this huge mess, like they're forklifting debris out of, you know, these blown through second story windows. And there's thousands of bottles of wine that are kind of like blackened and covered in this dust now and like fallen over. And it's just like, there's so much to do, but um, yes, they, you know, everyone I've been talking to pretty much has been saying they plan to rebuild and building anything in Napa's agricultural areas is very mm. complicated. As I mentioned before, they have this, they have very, very strict environmental regulations and getting permits to build buildings and wineries is extraordinarily complicated. I mean, I think it's a little easier when you lost your, your building due to fire, um, but so many of the the structures that have burned in the last few days are like from the 1800s. Mm -hmm. They're these old, super historical things. These, you know, the kind of beautiful early early buildings of Napa's modern winemaking history. It's it's very first moments and these old stone buildings and old barns and um, you don't get those back. I mean, you don't get the history back and the kind of legacy of, of, of wine and families that have, that have come through and had those properties. So it's a real loss. Signorello, which was kind of the, the most famous winery that was destroyed in 2017 in Napa. It, there was that super iconic image of it in flames, um, during the Atlas fire they, it took, I mean, I, I don't even know if they're finished rebuilding, but like, um, within a year they had like a double wide on the property that they were doing tastings in. They had this kind of makeshift <laughs> new tasting room, but it's not simple and it's not 
it's not quick. I mean, it will, it takes years certainly to, to get, um, a new structure back up and running. Mm. So Esther, both you and Justin actually have been talking to people up in wine country, restaurateurs, winemakers, just getting a sense of where people are at psychologically and if they're optimistic even, um, can you talk a little bit? I mean, I'm, I would love to hear from both of you just about what you've been hearing. Justin, what are you been hearing? I mean, it's a lot of, obviously, you know, we've been extensively covering uh, the Metalwood situation. And um, it's, how would I put this delicately? Uh, it's really painful in the beginning. Like it's, a lot of people are exasperated. It's very much a, you know, here we go again. Um, because if you think about like in the last, I don't know, 18 months, uh, we had like PG&E power outages. We've had, you know, fires. We had a pandemic. And, you know, especially for restaurants in an industry that's already, you know, like people barely had their heads above water for the most part before all of this. Like they were surviving um, through a pandemic, thinking that they were seeing a little bit of light, some kind of return to normalcy. And then you have these kinds of things happen. And it, you know, it reminds you that, you know, all of this stuff is you can lose everything really quickly. And um, and I think, you know, des describing it now, it's really painful at first. Um, there's kind of a resignation to the fact, I think. And then a, um, you know, and then a wait and see. I haven't gotten, <laughs> I wish I could say I've gotten some like hopeful comments from people. But, you know, whether <laughs> it's like talking to people from Meadowood, whether it's talking to people at the French Laundry, um, it's they're watching these things happen around them. And if, if they're lucky enough for it to not have happened at their property, you know, they're still saddened by it because they can see themselves in that other business. So it's just, it's a lot of pain right now, I think is the main thing. Sorry, it's a long-winded answer to say people are very unhappy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I try to never lose sight of the fact that, of course, wineries are an important part of our our world here in the Bay Area and for economic, cultural, et cetera, reasons. But People are losing homes, and a lot of these wineries have have money behind them, and um, that's something I think it's important to to keep a perspective on. I I mean I felt more emotional than some of the people I've been speaking with have seemed to be. Like I'm like crying sometimes when some of these people are telling me what happened, especially if I've, you know, it's a, a place I've I feel like I have a connection with and I've been to a number of times. Um, I, this morning, as I was speaking with Chris Howell, the winemaker at Kane, which I mentioned earlier, their, their 1871 barn and then their, also their main winery is gone. Um, he, I think, was still in this kind of shock. He certainly sounded somber, but um, he said a few things that I just found really poignant and helpful. Um, you know, wine is about place. Wine taste the way it does because it comes from a specific place and people go to great lengths to make wine from one area that's, you know, meaningfully different than wine that comes from like two feet away from it. And these places aren't gone. Buildings are gone. In some cases, you know, business inventory is gone, but um, the places remain. Vines are so much more resilient than any structures that we build as humans. And um, 
that stays, that's not going away. And, um, these wineries, you know, if they're even, even when so much history, 150 years worth of history is erased by a fire, the, you know, they still have this land and the, the wine will continue to speak of that. So I found that a comforting notion. Um, I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for being on the show with us, Esther, sharing your expertise. Oh, thanks for having me. Amazing as always. I love you guys. And <laughs> you guys are just killing it with this podcast. And I know it's not an easy thing to tack on to all that you guys already do in your actual normal jobs. <laughs> but um, it's been awesome. So that's all we have for today's episode. Thanks again to Esther Mobley for being in conversation with us. And thank you to Taya Francesca Price for editing this episode. You can read the transcript of our interview with Esther at sfchronicle.com slash spicy. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you have about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening.